Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus, increment 2.15, part 5 of the series within a series, the kind of archpriest we need, part 5. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity that you've provided in grace. We pray that you will give us assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of unseen realities as we march together on the King's Highway, knowing that you are in us and we are in you, even as our Lord Jesus assures us in John 14:20, We thank you for this time. Amen. We start with the thesis. Jesus, our archpriest, represents us and intercedes for us through this meantime between the alteration of the human situation, which occurred in the Christ event, and the time of the alteration of the human condition by the general resurrection and glorification which will occur in his second appearance. Thesis two for today. Jesus Christ is the kind of archpriest we need because he is our inclusive representative in the time between the radical permanent alteration of the human and creational situation and the radical and permanent alteration of the human and creational condition. We are in between. The radical change of the human situation occurred in Christ's first advent the radical and permanent alteration of the human condition, including its bodily alteration, is imminent and yet to be. We are in between those two radical alterations. And this is the most important advance we have made since discovering USSJC slash UICC. In fact, it goes beyond the mere doctrine of the universal impact of Jesus Christ and it expresses it and explains it in ways that meet our faith. Harold Atridge, deploying James Moffat's choice of the word rhapsody, refers to Hebrews 7:26 to 28 as, quote, a concluding rhapsody on the heavenly high priest. In those three verses, which are the focus of our attention, the author uses the figure of speech called ascendaton. You'll see these things in print, so I don't have to write them all down. Or ascendaton is the omission of conjunctions until the last of five descriptors of Jesus as the kind of archpriest we need. And that last descriptor being the climactic one, as we're going to see exalted higher than the heavens. In this paragraph, speaking again of 726 to 28, the author also employs alliteration using 13 A words, no fewer than 13 A words, really 12, but with one preposition, apo. And that includes three uses of the word archierus, meaning 
priest or archpriest, literally, and once in the singular in 726, the kind of archpriest we need, and twice archiaris in the plural, referring to the archpriests of the Levitical order, who are described in this last rhapsody as both needy and weak by comparison with Jesus Christ. Remember, we're not dealing here with a comparison and contrast in which the Old Testament priests are belittled or degraded in any way, but by auxasis or amplification, they are revealed in their dignity only to be superseded by Jesus in glory and honor. So this rhapsody, we'll call it that for now, correlates with another rhapsody, that's R-H-A-P-S-O-D-Y, not rhapsody in the rain, but the rhapsody in Hebrews. Another rhapsody occurs in Hebrews 4.12 and 13, and that is the rhapsody on the word of God, which immediately segues into the declaration that, quote, we have an archpriest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, in Hebrews 4.14. Both of these rhapsodies within Hebrews are introduced with the inferential conjunction gar, G-A-R, that is in both Hebrews 4.12 and 7.26. The word of God is described with five descriptors, five descriptive terms, living, active, supremely sharp, penetrating, and quick to discern. Our great archpriest and the rhapsody on him is described also with five descriptors or descriptive terms, holy, without malice, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above or higher than the heavens. Exalted above the heavens, that phrase in 726, links Hebrews 726 with Hebrews 414, and by way of Hebrews 414, it connects to 412 to 13. And I'm just showing that to show you that there is an identifiable structure in Hebrews. There is a close association between the Word of God, the Son of God, and our great archpriest throughout this sermon or discourse, which we call Hebrews. There's also a connection between Hebrews 4.15, in which Jesus, the Son of God, is said to be without sin, and Hebrews 7.27, where our archpriest has no need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. So I'll leave it to you to see the various connections and interweavings of these verses to show that there is an arc of coherence throughout this sermon and an organization that can only be by the Holy Spirit. So here's what we have in Hebrews 7. 26 so far. This is the kind of archpriest we need, hence the title of our series within a series. One who is holy, without malice. Remember, this is ascendatin, the opposite of polysyndeton, where the use of many ands. This is 
the use of no conjunctions until the last descriptor. And so we have one who is holy, comma, without malice. After holy, without malice, there's a masculine singular adjective, amiantos. In the Greek, amiantos means undefiled. And the word looks like this in the Greek. It's a m a n t a m i a n rather t o s amiantos amiantos means just that undefiled jesus our archpriest unlike the archpriests who were appointed by the law was never defiled either as a man as a priest or as the lamb of god he offered himself without spot to god hebrews 9:14 Contact with a leprous person or with a dead body by any other priest, the Old Old Testament priest, would have defiled the priest. Jesus was undefiled, even though Jesus came in contact with leprous persons, actually touching them, as we've seen already in Matthew 8.3. And it was to heal them and make them clean. So Jesus was not defiled by his contact with the leper rather the leper was cleansed by his contact with Jesus when he contacted dead bodies in Matthew 9:25 or touched an open coffin with a corpse within it in Luke 7:14 Jesus was not defiled by that contact because he raised the dead in both cases Jesus is undefiled because he was not able to be defiled. Instead of being defiled by a dead body, the dead body was raised by contact with Jesus. He is undefiled. The word amiantos is another link to the first epistle of Peter. This word amiantos is used twice in the apocryphal book of Second Maccabees in 1436 and 1534, once referring to the newly purified temple, or, quote, place of the Lord. As we know, Jesus himself now is the temple, which men destroyed, but which he raised up in three days, John 2:19 and 2:21. Now we, in union with him, are the temple of God, 1 Corinthians 3:16, as his corporate body, 1 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12 and 12:13. 12, 1225 to 27 and that is in anticipation of the moment when all of creation in all of its times will be that temple and when the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb himself will be the temple of the new universe the new heavens and the new earth the new Jerusalem Revelation 2121 Amiantos this word is used thrice three times in the apocryphal book called Wisdom of Solomon. Wisdom of Solomon 3.13, 4.2, and 8.20. Even though Wisdom of Solomon and Maccabees are not canonical, at least not in my view, they're not of the canon of scripture and therefore specifically inspired, they are nevertheless very useful in giving us the use of terms and words like amiantos. In Wisdom 3.13, it refers to a virgin who is not known the transgression of the marriage bed, thus linking this passage to Hebrews 13, 4, 
where it says that the marriage bed must be undefiled. Amiantos. In Wisdom 4.2, Amiantos describes the undefiled rewards or prizes won in the agona, the arena of contention, thus linking it again to 1 Peter, where the apostle speaks of an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for you. And obliquely, in 1 Peter, Amiantos is obliquely related to, quote, the unfading crown of glory that is promised to faithful shepherd teachers in 1 Peter 5.4, though Amiantos is not used there specifically in 5.4. Amarantinos, meaning unfading, is Peter's preferred adjective there, but there is an oblique relation at least. So the word amiantos for undefiled is only found four times in the Greek Bible itself throughout. That means Old and New Testaments. Twice of those four times, amiantos is found in Hebrews. Once in 726, once in 134. It's used once in James to describe pure and undefiled religion or religious observance, which cares for orphans and widows in their distress and keeps oneself from being contaminated by the world. Now, though John Lennon might want to imagine a world in which there is no religion, I too would like to imagine a world in which there is no religion if the religion we speak of is superstition or legalism or mysticism of various kinds. But there is a true religion and there's a true religious observance. And James describes it as caring for orphans and widows in their distress. And true religion keeps oneself from being contaminated by the world. Now that Amiantos is also used in 1 Peter 1.4 of all places is not surprising given the many literary links of 1 Peter with Hebrews, and there are many and we've seen a few of them. Though Amiantos is rarely deployed in the New Testament, the related verb miaino, M-I-A-I-N omega-O, miaino is related because that fits with amiantos in the sense that the miano means to be defiled. The verb means to be defiled. A miantos means undefiled. So the word miano is used five times in the New Testament and 113 times in the Old Testament, including 32 times in Leviticus. Defilement is therefore problematic in the Old Testament as well as the New. But in the Old Testament, it's defilement that's especially ritual defilement, defilement in the cultic sense. To be wholly undefiled is a rare and precious thing, as is noted by the comparison of undefiled, used only four times, with defiled, used 118 times in 
the Bible, me I know. Hebrews specifically, and I use that word Hebrews dash specifically, Hebrews in a, in a specific Hebrews sense. Jesus, as the kind of archpriest we need, fulfills and transcends the ritual purity required by the Levitical law. He is undefiled in every way, including ethically and morally, inwardly as well as outwardly. His purity is part of his sinless impeccability. He knew no sin, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Committed no sin, 1 Peter 2.22. Had no sin in him, 1 John 3.5. Though he was tested in every way as we are, and in ways that we will never be tested or tempted in, such as in Matthew 4, 1 to 11 and Luke 4, 1 to 13, he never resorted to sin to assuage the pressure or to ease the torment of temptation, Hebrews 4, 15, or to deviate from the way of the cross, Philippians 2, 8, which is the king's highway. Also, Hebrews specifically Jesus is undefiled as the husband of the chaste virgin who is to be his bride. Moreover, Jesus is undefiled by the toxic roots of resentment and bitter hatred, which are known to spring up and defile many, according to Hebrews 12.15. In that sense, Jesus himself never failed the grace of God. Indeed, by the grace of God, which is an alternate translation of Hebrews 2.9, he drank to the dregs the unspeakably bitter, toxic cup of sin for us. Undefiled, then, contains a hidden reference to the fact that the archpriest of Israel in the Levitical order was commanded to marry a virgin, Leviticus 21.13. Now, this has a connection in 2 Corinthians because writing to the saints in Corinth, Paul said that he had, quote, promised them in marriage to one husband, close quote, and by so doing to present a pure virgin to Christ. Notice that, 2 Corinthians 11.2. So there is at least in this case an oblique suggestion that Christ to whom they were espoused is their archpriest. As the archpriest is to be married only to a virgin or is to marry only a virgin and that he is to be undefiled refers to Jesus Christ, the archpriest, being married to the chaste virgin, which is the church. The bottom line is that undefiled or amiantas refers to Jesus' eminent qualification as this unique priest and sacrifice sacrificer and victim. For not only is the priest to be undefiled, but so is the sacrifice or the lamb. So how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, which is another way of saying undefiled as the lamb of God, purify your conscience to serve the living God. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Historically speaking, <clears throat> as we have seen, Melchizedek is the prefiguration of Christ as a priest of the Most High God. Eternally speaking, the Son of God is the archetype after whom Melchizedek is fashioned. <clears throat> Antitype, by definition, is, quote, 
one who is foreshadowed by or identified with an earlier symbol or type, such as the figure in the New Testament who has a counterpart in the Old Testament. Pretty good definition by American Heritage College Dictionary, the fifth edition. But it must be remembered that the antitype determines or controls the type and not vice versa. By that is meant that in the, in the case of Jesus and Melchizedek, though Melchizedek foreshadows Jesus as archpriest, Jesus as antitype is the determiner of Melchizedek. That means Jesus is the substance of which Melchizedek was merely a shadow. Melchizedek has been made to resemble the Son of God in some respects, as a shadow in some respects suggests the shape of the one casting the shadow. The eternal Son of God, though prefigured by Melchizedek historically, was not made like Melchizedek. Rather, Melchizedek was made to resemble the Son of God with respect to the archpriesthood, but not with respect to the sacrifice. So we're doing an exegesis here, and so we do a lot of thematic study here, a lot of theological study, but we want you to see that we're not abandoning the actual exegesis almost in a word-by-word sense. What do we got so far then? Hebrews 7.26, this is the kind of archpriest we need, one who is holy, without malice, undefiled. The fourth of five notable descriptors of Jesus, our archpriest, is separate from sinners. And I use the word descriptor rather than adjective because these descriptors are sometimes not an adjective but a series of words or a phrase. And the fifth or the fourth of five notable descriptors of Jesus in this rhapsody of our archpriest is that he is separate from sinners or better, the perfect tense is being used here, separated from sinners. Separated from sinners, in the the Greek phrase you'll find here in the printed form, uses the the perfect passive participle of chorizo, C-H-O-R-I-Z-O, both O's are omega. It means in a general sense that Jesus, our archpriest, has been distinguished from all sinful humanity. In the words of Peter in 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus is the just one who died for the unjust or the righteous one who died for the unrighteous. Jesus was also distinguished from all other human beings in that he was tested as all people are, and yet as no other human being, he never sinned. In a more specific sense, however, in this context, Jesus is different from all the priests and the archpriests of the Aaronic order who were sinful men and who had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the sins of the people. Again, this refers first, generally, to Jesus' impeccability. That's a general theological, Christological, hamartiological doctrine, as in 4.15 of Hebrews. But it also refers specifically, 
and particularly to his separateness from and superiority to the Levitical priests and archpriests who were sinners. Consequently, there's a continuity of theme here, being a comparison contrast between Jesus' forever priesthood and the Levitical priesthood, a comparison through the rhetorical method of auxasis. Auxasis, we've seen it before in comparisons with Moses, in comparisons with the angels, and now in comparison with the Levitical priesthood. That's auxasis. That's a comparison that doesn't say these guys are bad, this guy is good, but rather these guys have dignity, this man has superior dignity. So again, it is auxasis. So Jesus' priesthood is demonstrated to be substantially, even infinitely superior to the Dignity of the priesthood of the Aaronic order. The priests and the archpriests that were before Jesus were selected from among sinful humanity. He too was selected from among humanity, but is sinless. That Jesus was and is different from sinners, hamartolon is a word, or is the word here, hamartolon, sinners, that he was different from sinners is also dramatically demonstrated by his treatment by sinners. He endured the hostility of sinners. Hamartolon is used again here in Hebrews 12.2. He endured the hostility of sinners, not least because he was so unlike sinners. He was to them a dangerous stranger. Jeremiah 14.8. Luke 24:18 in the King James version he was an intruder in their view on their order he was an entirely other capital O T H E R Jesus was the ultimate stranger and the powers that be were truly xenophobic had a fear of strangers of course to the powers that be of the religious and political establishment Jesus was considered to be an existential threat. That's a word people like to use stupidly with regard to climate change and other things. But the powers that be considered Jesus to be an existential threat to them. That's both the political and the religious. A threat, that is, to their very existence. He endured the hostility of sinful people, including and even especially the hostility of sinful chief priests. Oddly enough, chief priests. Archieres in the plural in Matthew 26, 3 and 4, Matthew 26, 47 and 59, Matthew 27, 1, 27, 20, 27, 41, Mark 15, 11, Luke 22, 66, John 19.15, these archpriests, plural, were not archpriests in the classical sense. You notice the plural there is used by Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And I think Brian Messick explained this very well in one of his 
parts of Christ in the Passover. These archpriests were not archpriests in the classical sense, but they were classified as plural archpriests because of the corruptive political influence of the Roman Empire at the time. The Roman Empire would appoint certain men as archpriests that would be puppets for their agenda. The Hebrews author is not at all interested in demeaning the archpriests of the Levitical order, however, who were duly appointed by God's law. On the contrary, in his usual rhetorical method called oxasis, he is complementary of the priests of the Old Testament of the order of Aaron as being called by God from among men and appointed according to the law, the law of God through Moses. He is complimentary, our author is, in order to amplify the superior dignity of Jesus, the great archpriest. In any case, men crucified Jesus from their viewpoint because he was different. On the other hand, God exalted Jesus because he was different. Different from sinners and obedient to the extent of the death of the cross. That this specifically means Jesus' distinction from the archpriest, his separation from sinners, means specifically his separateness and distinction from the archpriest of the Levitical order is made obvious in the very next verse in 727, where it says that our archpriest, quote, has no need to offer daily, as the archpriests do, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He doesn't offer for his own sins because he has no sins. Instead of offering for his own sins and the sins of the people, he became sin, not just for the people of Israel, but for all people everywhere in all times. That's the chronological and extensional universality of the cross of Christ, the saving effect of it. And so the fifth and final descriptor of Jesus, our archpriest, is on an ascending scale the most significant because it says, and exalted above the heavens. That means higher than the heavens. It is to be noticed that by the exaltation of Jesus, our archpriest, he is said to be having become higher than the heavens. That's the literal translation, having become higher than the heavens. We have the Greek phrase in the printed version of this. The heavens, in this case, is a figure of speech called synecdoche. A lot of figures of speech here. We haven't paid attention to too many of them lately. A synecdoche. Again, the heavens is a synecdoche, a specific kind of synecdoche of the container for the contained. In other words, what is being said here is that Jesus has been exalted above all other beings in the heavens, even as he has been given a name that is above all names that are named in this age and the one to come. So note the extensional and chronological universality of Jesus' great archpriesthood. And thus his universally saving significance. I'm going to make a note of that to emphasize it. At the mention of Jesus' name, Yeshua, in the Hebrew, 
every knee in the heavens, on earth, and under the earth will bow, and every tongue acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua, the Lord is Jesus, to the glory of God. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Now, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is a very important text. It's a hymn that Paul alters slightly and in 2.8, and we'll see that perhaps another time, but it is a correlating passage with Hebrews in its totality. This is the eschatological moment, Philippians 2.9-11, of universal salvific submission to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Savior and the salvation of all of humanity, as well as the liberator of all creation, from its slavery to corruption and what physicists call entropy. Leave it to the incorruptible archpriest to be the liberator of all of the cosmos from slavery to corruption. Now Ephesians 1:19 to 20 speaks of quote the immeasurable greatness of the omnipotence of God which he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In Ephesians 1.21, the apostle then says that Jesus was seated, quote, far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every name named, or we could say every title given, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Notice the correlation. Higher than the heavens in Hebrews, above every name that is named, every being in the heavens in Ephesians. And that's the intent of above the heavens means above every other being in the heavens. What is conveyed here is the reality that Jesus was elevated or exalted, not above the heavens themselves, but above all the beings in the heavens, which in our limited understanding includes the principal, P-R-I-N-C-I-P-A-L, or highest ranking angels called principalities. Jesus' name is higher than any name that will ever be spoken, both in this age and the age to come. Moreover, his title as priest forever is higher than any title ever conferred on any being whatsoever and at any time or in any age. There is a perfect affinity and a perfect synchronicity between Ephesians and Hebrews in this case. We can see that the same truth can be articulated in different ways by different inspired authors of scripture. And that's a notable principle of bibliology. The same truth or truths can be articulated by different inspired authors in different ways. Different authors of scripture who speak and write by the same divine Holy Spirit. Ephesians makes very much of, quote, every name named in the present age and the one to come. Hebrews, likewise, 
makes much of the fact that the son in whom God spoke with finality in these last days in Hebrews 1-2 has inherited a more excellent name than the angels, all of them included, Hebrews 1-4. Now the name goes with the title. Name and title are almost united here. The name goes with the title. Jesus is the name, the title is Archpriest Forever in Hebrews. That Jesus is the Archpriest Forever and that he is exalted above every heavenly being to say nothing of being above every Archpriest with earthly fame is particularly notable. In addition to the similarity of Ephesians 1.20-21, to with Hebrews 7.26, is the Ephesians' allusion to Psalm 8.6, Septuagint 8.7, in 122a of Ephesians, where it says, quote, and put everything under his feet. That's the feet of the man, Christ Jesus, the Son of Man. It's an allusion which appears as a direct quotation about Jesus in Hebrews 2, 6 through 8. The mention of everything being put under Jesus, the Son of Man's feet, feet which we know to be nail-scarred, also gestures toward Psalm 110, Septuagint 109.1, which is quoted in Hebrews 113, and alluded to in Hebrews 10.13. I refer you to the written passage, the written part, or the written form of this message so that you can follow up these verses on your own if you're interested, and I think you should be. We needn't have to say how close Psalm 110.1, Septuagint 109.1, is to Psalm 110.4, Septuagint 109.4, where this same celebrity celebrity with a capital C, is a claim by God with a solemn oath to be a priest forever. That Hebrews has such affinity and synchronicity with Ephesians strongly suggests also that the author of Hebrews would have not been averse but rather inclined to adhere to the notion of the universal recapitulation in Christ that has such prominence in Ephesians, most notably in 1, 9 through 11, but also in 4.10 and elsewhere. Hebrews has a different intentionality with it, however. A Hebrews has a different pastoral intention in it than Ephesians in some regards. Hebrews, as a sermon, is designed to push the readers and hearers, including those on the level of our time, to push us past our limited horizons and restricted perceptions. I want to say that again because this really captures Hebrews and Nuche in a nutshell and Hebrews in toto in its totality. Hebrews as a sermon is designed to push the readers and hearers past their limited horizons and restricted perceptions. And this accounts for its seemingly harsh and even seemingly threatening warnings, such as those in Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. It is intended to bring about conversion in some of its listeners, if not all, 
and especially the listeners who are trending toward departure from the living God by bringing them into contact with the living God and to an undoing that would ultimately be salvific. That's the reason for a lot of things we go through in this life. It's an undoing which ultimately is salvific. If we lose our life, we find them, in other words. The name and title which was bestowed on Jesus by God, the Father, is also the subject, once again, of Philippians 2, 9 through 11. In that particular passage, the universal and chronological extensionality of his salvific significance is showcased because the prediction is made that every tongue will acknowledge Yahweh to be named Jesus. And this universal praise-filled acknowledgement will not be a challenge at all to God the Father, but it will rather be to his glory. For the Father not only glories in his Son as an equal, but he glories in the recognition by all rational beings of that equality. On top of this, the Father glories in the accomplishment of the man Christ Jesus and in his universally efficacious sacrifice, self-sacrifice. The man Christ Jesus secured eternal redemption for all of humanity and all of creation. And this is a fact and a capital R reality that will become fully manifested in his second appearing. Thesis. It is from this exalted position and in a tent constructed not by men but by God that Jesus acts and ministers as our great archpriest during the meantime that is ongoing between the radical alteration of the human situation brought about by the Christ event and the radical alteration of the human condition that is to be manifested in the general resurrection. In future, in the future, bodily resurrection will occur and what will occur with that is the full manifestation of the alteration of the human situation which occurred in the death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. When he manifests for all to see the radical alteration of the human situation which already occurred when God in Christ reconciled the world to himself. But when God makes that situation, that alteration of the human situation apparent to all, it will be by the alteration of the human condition itself and even a permanent alteration of the somatic status of humanity and all of creation for that matter. Even now in Uranopolis, the heavenly city, the new and heavenly Jerusalem, Jesus is higher in rank than any of the innumerable angels there. In fact, there are all of the angels of God there worship him, God's firstborn. So compare this planet 
compare Hollywood, compare Washington, D.C., compare social media, news media, dramas on TV, who curse the name of Jesus Christ. Compare that with future world where already all the angels of God worship him, as do the spirits of justified people made complete. Even now, in Uranopolis, all the angels of God willingly worship him. Hebrews 1.6 Now, on earth, as we're going to see, this is kind of a, an anticipation of what happens in Hebrews 8, but it also is relevant to where we are right now. On earth, Jesus was not qualified to be a priest after the order of Aaron. But on the cross, he was lifted up between the earth and the heaven, where he performed the action of the ultimate archpriest by offering himself without blemish to God by the eternal spirit. That's Hebrews 9.14 again. There he also endured the judgment as the judged for us. The judge judged for us. Jesus was suspended between the earth, where he was not qualified to be a priest after the order of Aaron, and the heaven, where he is now exalted. He was lifted up on the cross. But this lifting up, John 3.14, John 8.28 and 29, John 12.32 and elsewhere, this lifting up, as as humiliating as it appeared and indeed as ignominious and even horrible, as it was, it was the beginning of his exaltation to the right hand of God. David Levy, also, I guess you could pronounce it Levi, L-E-V-Y, makes the following observation in his very excellent and helpful book on the tabernacle called The Tabernacle, Shadows of the Messiah. David Levy makes this helpful observation. At the altar, an innocent lamb bore the judgment of the guilty. Christ, the believer's lamb, John 1.29, Revelation 13.8, died on the altar of the cross to bear the judgment of God's wrath against sin on our behalf, Isaiah 53.3-6, Romans 4.25. The sacrifice being burnt on the altar as a sweet savor to God, Leviticus 1.9, typified Christ who was offered offered up as a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor, Ephesians 5.2. Then he adds this, the word altar, A-L-T-A-R, means high place. The sacrifices had to be, listen, lifted up on the elevated altar. And he notes Leviticus 9.22 from there because the priest had to then come down after that happened. Christ's being lifted up, I'm still quoting Levy here, Christ's being lifted up on the cross as our sacrifice speaks of this procedure the lifting up of the lambs and the sacrificial animals. 
And then he says this in closing, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up in John 3, 14. Now where's that going? Well, that's going to 3.17. God didn't send his son into the world to judge the world, but so that through him God would save the world. Why? Because the judge is to be judged in place of the world. God was in Christ, therefore, reconciling the world to himself. That is what has happened in the cross. Only by faith and not by scientific observation or empiricism or what you feel or experience Only by faith do we recognize this radical alteration of the human situation in which God has already reconciled the world to himself in Christ at the cross. And that's where we're going. And I hope I make this very clear. And I hope, well, the Holy Spirit makes it clear. Clear as a crystal river proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. So in closing... For this reason, Jesus said to Caiaphas, who was, quote, the archpriest that year, John 11, 49, from now on, he said, you will see the Son of Man. Not in the distant future, he said, from now on. Ap arti, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, capital P, and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on means not only in the future, but from this moment on, that very moment on in Matthew 26, 62 and following. And that means throughout the passion of Jesus and throughout the entire Christ event, which would culminate in his glorious resurrection and elevation above the heavens. So to see Jesus Christ crucified as Caiaphas did is to see the Son of Man already being lifted up and exalted and coming on the clouds of glory and at the right hand of power. Father, I thank you for this wonderful message that is Hebrews-specific in which we learn of our great archpriest who intercedes for us throughout this meantime between the radical alteration of the human situation that occurred at the cross and the radical alteration of the human condition, which will occur in his second appearance. Thank you for it, Father. Thank you for him. In Jesus' name, amen.